Section 16 of the Animal Storybook, edited by Andrew Lang. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Bishop. Section 16 of the Animal Storybook, Monsieur Dumas and His Beasts, Chapters 4 through 6. By Mrs. Lang. Chapter 4. The following Sunday, when my son Alexandra and one or two intimate friends were assembled in my room, a second Avignon boy with a second monkey demanded admittance and said that a friend having told him that M. Dumas had bought his monkey for forty francs, two white mice, and a guinea pig, he was prepared to offer his for the same price. My friends urged me to buy the second monkey. Do buy this charming creature, said my artist friend Gerou. Yes, do buy this ridiculous little beast, said Alexandra. Buy him, indeed, said I. Have I forty francs to give away every day, to say nothing of a guinea pig and two white mice? Gentlemen, said Alexandra, I am sorry to tell you that my father is, without exception, the most avaricious man living. My guest exclaimed, but Alexandra said that one day he would prove the truth of his assertion. I was now called upon to admire the monkey, and to remark how like he was to a friend of ours. Giroux, who was painting a portrait of this gentleman, said that if I would let the monkey sit to him, it would help him very much in his work, and Mackay, Another of my guests offered amidst general applause to make me a present of it. Side note, Mackay, the immortal Augustus, Maquite. This decided me. You see, said Alexandra, he accepts. Come, young man, I said to the Avignon, embrace your monkey for the last time, and if you have any tears to shed, shed them without delay. When the full price was paid, the boy made an attempt to do as I told him, but the last of the laid manoirs refused to be embraced by his former master, and as soon as the latter had gone away, he seemed delighted and began to dance, while Mademoiselle de Gossens in her cage, too, danced with all her might. Look, said Mackay, they like each other. Let us complete the happiness of these interesting animals. We shut them up in their cage together, to the great delight of Mademoiselle de Gossens, who did not care for Potish, and much preferred her new admirer. Potish indeed showed signs of jealousy, but, not being armed with the sword which he used to have when he fought duels, he could not wash out his affronts in the blood of his rival, but become a prey to silent melancholy and wounded affection. While we were still looking at the monkeys, a servant came in bringing a tray with wine and seltzer water. I say, said Alexandra, let us make Mademoiselle de Gossens open the seltzer water bottle. And he put the bottle inside the cage on the floor. No sooner had he done so than all three monkeys surrounded it and looked at it with the greatest curiosity. Mademoiselle de Gossens was the first to understand something would happen if she undid the four crossed wires which held down the cork. She accordingly set to work first with her fingers, and then with her teeth, and it was not long before she undid the first three. She next attacked the fourth, while the whole company, both men and monkeys, 
watched her proceedings with breathless attention. Presently a frightful explosion was heard. Mademoiselle de Gossens was knocked over by the cork and drenched with seltzer water, while Potish and the last of the Lady Manoirs fled to the top of their cages, uttering piercing cries. Oh! cried Alexandra. I'll give my share of seltzer water to see her open another bottle. Mademoiselle de Gossens had got up, shaken herself, and gone to rejoin her companions, who were still howling lamentably. You don't suppose she'll let herself be caught a second time, said Giroux. Do you know, said Mackay, I should not wonder if she would. I believe her curiosity would still be stronger than her fear. Monkeys, said Michel, who had come in on hearing their cries, are more obstinate than mules. The more seltzer water bottles you give them, the more they will uncork. Do you think so, Michel? You know, of course, how can they catch them in their own country? No, Michel. What? You don't know that, gentleman? said Michel, full of compassion for our ignorance. You know that monkeys are very fond of Indian corn. Well, you put some Indian corn into a bottle, the neck with which is just large enough to admit a monkey's paw. He sees the Indian corn through the glass. Well, Michel? He puts his hand inside and takes a good handful of Indian corn. At that moment, the hunter shows himself. They are so obstinate, the monkeys, I mean, they won't let go of what they have in their hand. But as they can't draw their closed fist through the opening, there they are, you see, caught. Well then, Michel, if ever our monkeys get out, you will know how to catch them again. Oh, no fear, sir. That is just what I shall do. The seltzer water experiment was successfully repeated, to the triumph of Michel and the delight of Alexandre, who wished to go on doing it, but I forbade it, seeing that poor Mademoiselle de Garcin's nose was bleeding from the blow of the cork. It is not that, said Alexandre. It is because you judge your seltzer water. I have already remarked, gentlemen, that my father is, I regret to say, an exceedingly avaricious man. CHAPTER Five. It is now my painful duty to give my readers some account of the infamous conduct of Misouf the Second. One morning, on waking rather late, I saw my bedroom door gently opened, and the head of Michel thrust in, wearing such a concerned expression that I knew at once that something was wrong. What has happened, Michel? Why, sir, those villains of monkeys have managed to twist a bar of their cage, I don't know how, until they have made a great hole, and now they have escaped. Well, but, Michel, we foresaw that this might occur, and now you have only to buy your Indian corn and to procure three bottles the right size. Ah, you are laughing, sir, said Michel, reproachfully. But you won't laugh when you know all. They open the door of the aviary. And so my birds have flown away? Sir, your six pairs of turtle doves, your fourteen quails, and all your little foreign birds are eaten up. Side note. Let the reader compare the conduct of Mr. Gully later. But monkeys won't eat birds. No, but Master Misouf will, and he has done it. The deuce he has. I must see for myself. 
Yes, go for yourself, sir. You will see a sight, a field of battle, a massacre of St. Bartholomew. As I was coming out, Michel stopped me to point to Potish, who had hung himself by the tail to the branch of a maple, and was swinging gracefully to and fro. Mademoiselle de Gossens was bounding gaily about an aviary, while the last of the late Lenoirs was practicing gymnastics on the top of the greenhouse. Well, Michel, we must catch them. I will manage the last of the late Lenoirs if you will get hold of Mademoiselle de Gossens. As to poor little Potish, he will come of his own accord. I wouldn't trust him, sir. He is a hypocrite. He has made it up with the other one. Just think of that. What? He has made friends with his rival in the affections of Mademoiselle de Gossens? Just so, sir. This is sad indeed, Michel. I thought only human beings could be guilty of so mean an action. You see, sir, these monkeys have frequented the society of human beings. I now advanced upon the last of the late manoirs with so much precaution that I contrived to shut him into the greenhouse, where he retreated into a corner and prepared to defend himself, while Potish, from the outside, encouraged his friend by making horrible faces at me through the glass. At this moment piercing shrieks were heard from Mademoiselle de Gossens. Michel had just caught her. These cries so enraged the last of the Lebenoirs that he dashed out upon me, but I parried his attack with the palm of my hand, with which he came in contact so forcibly that he lost breath for a minute, and then I picked him up by the scruff of the neck. Have you caught Mademoiselle de Gossens? I shouted to Michel. Have you caught the last of the Lebenoirs? returned he. Yes, we both replied in turn and each bearing his prisoner, we returned to the cage, which had in the meantime been mended, and shut them up once more, while Potish, without lamentations, fled to the top of the highest tree in the garden. No sooner, however, did he find that his two companions were unable to get out of their cage, than he came down from his tree, approached Michel in a timid and sidelong manner, and with clasped hands and little plaintive cries, entreated to be shut up again with his friends. Just see what a hypocrite he is, said Michel. But I was of opinion that the conduct of Potish was prompted by devotion rather than hypocrisy. I compared it to that of Regulus, who returned to Carthage to keep his promised word, or to King John of France, who voluntarily gave himself up to the English for the Countess of Salisbury's sake. Michel continued to think Potish a hypocrite, but on account of his repentance he was forgiven. He was put back into the cage, where Mademoiselle de Gossens took very little notice of him. All this time Misouf had been forgotten, calmly remained in the aviary, and continued to crunch the bones of his victims with the most hardened indifference. It was easy enough to catch him. We shut him into the aviary and held a council as to what should be his punishment. Michel was of option that he should be shot forthwith. I was, however, opposed to this immediate execution and resolved to wait until the following Sunday and then to cause Misouf to be formally tried by my assembled friends. The condemnation was therefore postponed. 
In the meantime, Misuf remained a prisoner in the very spot where his crimes had been committed. He continued, however, to refresh himself with the remains of his victims without apparent remorse. But Michel removed all the bodies and confined him to a diet of bread and water. Next Sunday, having convoked a council of all my friends, the trial was proceeded with. Michel was appointed chief justice and Nogent St. Laurent was counsel to the prisoner. I may remark that the jury were inclined to find a verdict of guilty, and after the first speech of the judge, the capital sentence seemed almost certain, but the skillful advocate, in a long and eloquent speech, brought clearly before us the innocence of Misuf, the malice of the monkeys, their quickness and incessant activity compared with the less inventive minds of cats. He showed us that Misuf was incapable of contemplating such a crime, he described him wrapped in peaceful sleep, then, suddenly aroused from his innocent slumber by the abandoned creatures who, living as they did opposite the aviary, had doubtless long harbored their diabolical designs. We saw Misuf but half awake, still purring innocently, opening his pink mouth, from which protruded a tongue like that of a heraldic lion. He shakes his ears a proof that he rejects the infamous proposal that is being made to him. He listens. At first he refuses. The advocate insists that the prisoner had begun by refusing. Then, naturally yielding, hardly more than a kitten, corrupted as he had been by the cook, who insisted on feeding him milk or a little weak broth, as she had been told to do, had recklessly excited his carnivorous appetite by giving him pieces of liver and parings of raw chops. The unfortunate young cat yields little by little, prompted more by good nature and weakness of mind than by cruelty or greed. And only half awake, he does the bidding of the villainous monkeys, the real instigators of the crime. The council here took the prisoner in his arms showed us his paws and defied any anatomist to say that with paws so made an animal could possibly open a door that was bolted finally he borrowed michel's dictionary of natural history opened it at the article cat domestic cat wild cat he proved that misuf was no wild cat seeing that nature had robed him in white the color of innocence then smiting the book with vehemence cat he exclaimed cat you shall now hear gentlemen what the illustrious buffon the man with lace sleeves has to say about the cat the cat says m de buffon is not to be trusted but it is kept to rid the house of enemies which cannot otherwise be destroyed although the cat especially when young is pleasing Nature has given it perverse and untrustworthy qualities which increase with age, and with education may conceal, but will not eradicate. Well then, exclaimed the orator, after having read this passage, what more remains to be said? Did poor Misuf come here with a false character seeking a situation? Was it not the cook herself who found him? who took him by force from the heap of sticks behind which he had sought refuge. It was merely to interest and touch the heart of her master that she described him mewing in the cellar. We must reflect also that those unhappy birds, his victims, I allude especially the quails, which are eaten by man, though their death is doubtless much to be deplored, 
yet they have felt themselves liable to death at any moment, and are now released from their terrors they experienced every time they saw Cook approaching their retreat. Finally, gentlemen, I appeal to your justice, and I think you will now admit that the interesting and unfortunate Misouf has but yielded not only to uncontrollable natural instincts, but also to foreign influence. I claim for my client the plea of extenuating circumstances. The counsel's pleading was received with cries of applause, and Misouf, found guilty of the complicity in the murders of the quails, turtle doves, and other birds of different species, but with extenuating circumstances, was sentenced only to five years of monkeys. Chapter 6 The next winter, certain circumstances with which I need not trouble my readers led to my making a journey to Algiers. I seldom make a long journey without bringing home some animal to add to my collection, and accordingly I returned from Africa accompanied by a vulture, which I bought from a little boy who called himself a Beni Mufatard. I paid ten francs for the vulture, and made the Beni Mufatard a present of two more, in return for which he warned me that my vulture was excessively savage, and had already bitten off the thumb of an Arab and the tail of a dog. I promised to be very careful, and the next day I became the possessor of a magnificent vulture, whose only fault consisted in a strong desire to tear in pieces everybody who came near him. I bestowed on him the name of his compatriot, Jugada. He had a chain fastened to his leg, and had for further security been placed in a large cage made of spars. In this cage he travelled quite safely as far as Philippeville, without any other accident than that he nearly bit off the finger of a passenger who had tried to make friends with him. At Philippeville a difficulty arose. It was three miles from Stora, the port where we were to embark, and the diligence did not go on so far. I and several other gentlemen thought that we would like to walk to Stora, the scenery being beautiful, and the distance not very great. But what was I to do about Jurgatha? I could not ask a porter to carry the cage. Jurgatha would certainly have eaten him through the spars. I thought of a plan. It was to lengthen his chain eight or ten feet by means of a cord, and then to drive him in front of me with a long pole. But the first difficulty was to induce Jurgatha to come out of his cage. None of us dared put our hands within reach of his beak. However, I managed to fasten the cord to his chain. Then I made two men armed with pickaxes break away the spars. Jugurtha, finding himself free, spread out his wings to fly away. But he could, of course, only fly as far as his cord would permit. Now Jugurtha was a very intelligent creature. He saw that there was an obstacle in the way of his liberty and that I was that obstacle. He, therefore, turned upon me with fury, in the hope of putting me to flight, or devouring me in case of resistance. I, however, was no less sagacious than Jugatha. I had foreseen the attack, and provided myself with a good switch made of dogwood, as thick as one's forefinger, and eight feet long. With this switch I parried Jugatha's attack, which astounded but did not stop him. However, a second blow, given with all my force, made him stop short, and a third caused him to fly in the opposite direction. 
that is, towards Stora. Once launched upon this road, I had only to use my switch adroitly to make Jugatha proceed at about the same pace as we did ourselves, to the great admiration of my fellow travelers, and of all the people whom we met on the road. On our arrival at Stora, Jugatha made no difficulty about getting on board the steamer, and when tied to the mast, waited calmly while a new cage was made for him. He went into it of his own accord, received with gratitude the pieces of meat which the ship's cook gave him, and three days after his embarkation he became so tame that he used to present me with his head to scratch as a parrot does. I brought Jugatha home without further adventure, and committed him to the charge of Michel. It was not until my return from Algiers on this occasion that I went to live at Monte Cristo, the building of which had been finished during my absence. Up to this time I had lived in a smaller house called the Villa Medicis, and while the other was building, Michel made arrangements for the proper lodgings of all my animals, for he was much more occupied about their comfort than he was about mine or even his own. They had all plenty of room, particularly the dogs, who were not confined by any sort of enclosure, and Pritchard, who was naturally generous, kept open house with a truly Scottish hospitality. It was his custom to sit in the middle of the road and salute every dog that passed with a little unfriendly growl, smelling him, and permitting himself to be smelt in a ceremonious manner. When a mutual sympathy had been produced by this means, a conversation something like this would begin. Have you a good master? asked the strange dog. Not bad, Pritchard would reply. Does your master feed you well? Well, one has porridge twice a day, bones at breakfast and dinner, and anything one can pick up in the kitchen besides. The stranger licks his lips. You are not badly off, said he. I do not complain, replied Pritchard. Then, seeing the strange dog look pensive, he added, Would you like to dine with us? The invitation was accepted at once, for dogs do not wait to be pressed, like some foolish human beings. At dinner time Pritchard came in, followed by the unknown dog, who, like Pritchard, placed himself besides my chair and scratched my knee with his paw in such a confiding way that I felt sure that Pritchard must have been commending my benevolence. The dog, after spending a pleasant evening, found that it was rather too late to return home, so slept comfortably on the grass after his good supper. Next morning he took two or three steps as if to go away. Then, changing his mind, he inquired of Pritchard, should I be much in the way if I stayed on here? Pritchard replied, You could quite well, with management, make them believe you are the neighbor's dog, and, after two or three days, nobody would know you did not belong to the house. You might live here just as well as those idle useless monkeys, who do nothing but amuse themselves, or that greedy vulture, who eats tripe all day long, or that idiot macaw, who is always screaming about nothing. The dog stayed, keeping in the background at first, but in a day or two he jumped up upon me and followed me everywhere, and there was another guest to feed. That was all. 
Michelle asked me one day if I knew how many dogs there were about the place. I answered that I did not. Sir, said Michelle, there are thirteen. That is an unlucky number. Michelle, you must see that they do not all dine together, else one of them is sure to die first. It is not that, though, said Michelle. It is the expense I am thinking of, why they would eat an ox a day, all those dogs, and if you will allow me, sir, I will just take a whip and put the whole pack to the door tomorrow morning. But, Michelle, let us do it handsomely. These dogs, after all, do honor the house by staying here. So give them a grand dinner tomorrow. Tell them that it is the farewell banquet, and then, at dessert, put them all to the door. But after all, sir, I cannot put them to the door, because there isn't a door. Michelle, said I, there are certain things in this world that one must just put up with, to keep up one's character and position. Since all these dogs have come to me, let them stay with me. I don't think they will ruin me, Michelle. Only on their own account. You should be careful that there are not thirteen. I will drive away one, suggested Michelle, and then there will only be twelve. On the contrary, let another come, and then there will be fourteen. Michelle sighed. It's a regular kennel, he murmured. It was, in fact, a pack of hounds, though rather a mixed one. There was a Russian wolfhound, there was a poodle, a water spaniel, a spitz, a dachshund with crooked legs, a mongrel terrier, a mongrel King Charles, and a Turkish dog which had no hair on its body, only a tuft upon its head and a tassel at the end of its tail. Our next recruit was a little Maltese terrier named Lisette, which raised the number to fourteen. After all, the expense of these fourteen amounted to rather over two pounds a month. A single dinner given to five or six of my own species would have cost me three times as much, and they would have gone away dissatisfied, for, even if they had liked my wine, they would have certainly found fault in my books. Out of this pack of hounds, one became Pritchard's particular friend and Michel's favorite. This was a dachshund with short crooked legs, a long body, and, as Michel said, the finest voice in the department of Seni was. Portugal, that was his name, had in truth the most magnificent bass voice. I used to hear it sometimes in the night when I was writing, and think how that deep-toned majestic bark would please St. Hubert if he heard it in his grave. But what was Portugal doing at that hour? And why was he awake while the other dogs slumbered? This mystery was revealed one day, when a stewed rabbit was brought me for dinner. I inquired where the rabbit came from. You thought it good, sir? Michel asked me with a pleased face. Excellent. Well, then you can have one just the same every day, sir, if you like. Every day, Michel? Surely that is almost too much to promise. Besides, I should like before consuming so many rabbits to know where they come from. You shall know that this very night, if you don't mind coming out with me. Ah, Michel, 
I have told you before that you are a poacher. Oh, sir, as to that, I am as innocent as a baby, and, as I was saying, if you will only come out with me tonight. Must I go far, Michel? Not a hundred yards, sir. At what o'clock? Just at the moment when you hear Portugal's first bark. Very well, Michel, I will be with you. I had nearly forgotten this promise, and was writing as usual when Michel came into my study. It was about eleven o'clock and a fine moonlight night. Hallo, said I. Portugal hasn't barked yet, has he? No, but I was just thinking that if you waited for that, you would miss seeing something curious. What should I miss, Michel? The council of war which is held between Pritchard and Portugal. I followed Michel, and sure enough, among the fourteen dogs, which were mostly sleeping in different attitudes, Portugal and Pritchard were sitting up, and seemed to be gravely debating some important question. When the debate was ended, they separated. Portugal went out at the gate to the high road, turned the corner, and disappeared, while Pritchard began deliberately, as if he had plenty of time before him, to follow the little path which led up to a stone quarry. We followed Pritchard, who took no notice of us, though he evidently knew we were there. He went up to the top of the quarry, examined and smelt about over the ground with great care, and when he had found a scent and assured himself that it was fresh, he lay down flat and waited. Almost at the same moment, Portugal's first bark was heard some two hundred yards off. Now the plan the two dogs had laid was clear to us. The rabbits came out of their holes in the quarry every evening to go to their feeding ground. Pritchard found the scent of one. Portugal then made a wide circuit, found and chased the rabbit, and as a rabbit or a hare always comes back upon its former track, Pritchard, lying in ambush, awaited its return. Accordingly, as the sound of Portugal's barking came closer, we saw Pritchard's yellow eyes light up and flame like a topaz. Then all of a sudden he made a spring, and we heard a cry of fright and distress. They've done it, said Michel. And he went to Pritchard, took out of his mouth a nice plump rabbit, gave it a blow behind the ears to finish it, and, opening it on the spot, gave the inside to the two dogs, who shared their portion contently, although they probably regretted Michel's interference. As Michel told me, I could have eaten a stewed rabbit every day for dinner, if such had been my desire. But after this, events of a different kind were taking place, which obliged me to leave my country pursuits, and I spent about two months in Paris. The day before I returned to St. Germain's, I wrote and told Michel to expect me, and found him waiting for me on the road halfway from the station. I must tell you, sir, he said, as soon as I was within hearing, that two important events have happened at Monte Cristo since you went away. Well, Michel, let me hear. In the first place, Pritchard got his hind foot into a snare, and instead of staying where he was as any other dog would have done, he bit off his foot with his teeth, and so he came home upon three legs. But, said I, 
much shocked. Is the poor beast dead after such an accident? Dead, sir? Was not I there to doctor him? And what did you do to him, then? I cut off the foot properly at the joint with a pruning knife. I then sewed the skin neatly over it, and now you would never know it was off. Look there, the rascal has smelt you and is coming to meet you. And at that moment Pritchard appeared, coming at full gallop, so that, as Michel had said, one would hardly have noticed that he had only three feet. My meeting with Pritchard was, as may be supposed, full of deep emotion on both sides. I was sorry for the poor animal. When I had recovered a little, I asked Michel what his other piece of news was. The latest news, sir, is that Jugatha's name is no longer Jugatha. What is it, then? It is Diogenes. And why? Look, sir, we had now reached the little avenue of ash trees which formed the entrance to the villa. To the left of the avenue, the vulture was seen walking proudly to and fro in an immense tub, which Michel had made into a house for him. Ah, now I understand, said I. Of course, directly he lives in a tub. That's it said Michel. Directly he lives in a tub. He cannot be Jugatha any more. He must be Diogenes. I admired Michel's historical learning no less than I did his surgical skill, just as the year before. I had bowed before his superior knowledge of natural history. End of section 16